Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Here's what it says. Here's the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at verses 17 through 19 and see what we have to learn from Abraham this morning. The scripture reads, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, after those many years of waiting, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, he did this with a conclusion, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So this morning, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. Uh, This is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word this morning, the gift of clarity that we have from creating space here for you to speak into our lives. Lord, we can only imagine where we would be without your voice, without your word, without you reaching down in your love to communicate to us who you are, what we need what you're doing. And so this morning, God, that's based on that acknowledgement. We just want to posture our hearts with that same spirit of anticipation that Abraham had to expect you, God, to speak to us. We invite your Holy Spirit here to speak. May we have ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying. And each and every week, God, as it is my prayer, I, I, I just want to surrender my efforts to you. Um, I've prepared a sermon. I've done my, my best to study. But now our hope is not in me. It's, and we're not even here for me or anyone else. We're here for you, Jesus. So, God, would you get me out of the way so that we could hear from you, so that we can see you? We pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you'd like to take notes, each week we're kind of featuring the different... Um, exercise of faith that the person displayed. And so here's the big topic of focus today that we get from Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. Looking at Abraham, episode 3, we see this display of Abraham's faith in that he trusted God by faith. By faith, Abraham trusted God. You know, and each time we look at something like this, what we're led to think about is, could this be said about my life as well? Could it be said that by faith, Fill in the blank, your name, trusted God. Well, we we have what that looks like here with Abraham. Trust can look like a lot of different things. Maybe you've you've heard the the great story of the famous tightrope walker. He's a tightroper, too. That's that's kind of the slang term for it on the streets, the tightroper. He's a tightroper. In the late 1800s, a famous tightroper who was the first ever to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. There was hundreds of thousands of people that gathered around this display of, uh, of incredible skill as this guy, you, you know, defied what was possible by you know, accomplishing this incredible, you know, extreme sport back then, walking this tightrope. And after the hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people watched him do this, he, he continued to kind of up the ante and uh, he, he made it harder and harder each time. So first he walked on the tightrope. And then he walked and maybe kind of spun around on the tightrope. And then at one point, he walked across the tightrope with a wheelbarrow, pulling the wheelbarrow across the tightrope. And after he he does this a handful of times, he's looking on at the crowd, 
and he has his kind of assistant with him, and he's asking the crowd, should he put the man, his assistant, in the, tight, in the wheelbarrow and walk him across the tightrope? And kind of polling the crowd, do you think that I can do this? Do you think that I could take my assistant here, put him in the wheelbarrow, and safely cross Niagara Falls on the tightrope with them? And everybody in the crowd was like, yes, of course you can. We believe that you can. He said, okay, who's my first volunteer? And the whole crowd went silent, of course. Because, listen, there's a difference between believing and trusting I believe you can do it, but I so believe you, God, that I'm going to trust the weight of my life in your hands. God, I so believe you that I'm going to get into the wheelbarrow. I'm going to allow you to carry me, and I'm going to trust you with everything. It's a big difference there between believing, God, you can do it, and saying, I'll be your volunteer, Lord. <laughs> here I am. Well, Abraham is a great example here in this chapter and in these verses of what it looks like to get into God's wheelbarrow, to say, God, I, I'm yours. And of course, it, it comes to us through a rather familiar, I think often misunderstood passage in the Bible. One of the more difficult sections of scripture as we're kind of sifting through what's going on here between God and Abraham and God asking Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Like, what's up with that? So let's just go back and let's take a minute here. I want to read through it. So I had you turn to Hebrews 11, but also Genesis 22. Let's go to Genesis 22. And here in this section, this chapter, we have the context of this, these verses here in Hebrews 11. We have the context of a, a really unique, and let me say a, um, an exclusively unique event in history between Abraham and God, uh, this God who he's come to know like a friend knows a friend. Abraham was called the friend of God. And, and God's friend, Abraham, hears from the Lord here to do something kind of unique here in Genesis 22. So let's read it. Genesis 22, let's read through these verses. And, and Mike, if you could, could take us through that. The verses will be up on the screen. Let me just turn to it myself. Genesis 22 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now, this kind of speaks of the faith of Abraham's life at this point. He is just ready and available to God. God has already called this guy to do some crazy things like leave your com the comfort of your context, leave your home, leave everything, and trust that I'm going to provide for you in the future. So this is just who Abraham is at this point. He's like a here I am kind of, God, uh, kind of guy to, to the Lord. He's like, here am I, God. Use me. Do whatever you want with my life. I'm not sure he anticipated how hard that would actually be in the verses to come. Verse 2 says, Then God said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, it was at this moment that not only is Abraham questioning all of his theology, but he's beginning to go, okay, who is that actually speaking to me? That can't be God. Like, what's going on here? But this is God himself. This is a very unique and even strange and difficult to understand instruction that God would give. Um, you know, some of the best pieces of advice that I could give to anyone who's having a hard time with a verse of the Bible that they're reading is this. Keep reading. I just can't get past this verse. Keep reading. Get past it, and it might make a little bit more sense as you keep going. So verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning 
And he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering. One commentator mentioned just kind of the order of events here. The fact that he's like saddling the donkey before anything else, which is usually the thing that you would do last, kind of shows that maybe he's a bit disoriented. It's early in the morning, so I can relate to that. But also, he's kind of walking out something very terrifying here. He's not all there. He's doing his best to follow his, uh, God's instructions. So Abraham takes the, the, the donkey, saddles it, takes two of his young men with him, two servants along with him, and Isaac, his son, and he splits the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, it says, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young man, young men, stay here with the donkey. I love this. The lad and I will go yonder. I just love to be able to say the word lad because I wish it was more normal and we could use it more often. But um, this is an important verse here. He's telling them, hey, I'm about to go up. I'm going to take the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Now, an important fact here that's often missed um, Abraham's, the word that he uses here to describe his son uh, as a lad, it, it's, it's the same word that it's used to describe the young men that are accompanying them. So th this is, uh, some, some scholars would interpret this as a young adult. Um, Abraham at this age could be anywhere from 18 to, or sorry, Isaac could be anywhere from 18 to 37 years old. So that means I could still be called a lad from biblical terms, and I like that, Okay. So this is not like a lad, like what I think of is like the berries and cream, berries and cream. It's not like the, the Starburst guy lad, okay? Or like a little British boy. This is, this is serious. This is a grown young man, a grown young man. Isaac at this age, he's, this, he's around the same age. And we see a little bit more um, evidence to this because um, it says in verse 6 that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Okay, that would be child labor if he was eight years old. Okay? So this is, this is a guy who can carry, this guy's about to ascend a mountain with a load of logs on his back. This is a bigger guy. So, so I think that's just important right there. This isn't God telling Abraham, go sacrifice your young child. This is, we're going to see this sort of like unified step that they're taking. Ultimately, it's a picture of another sacrifice that a father would make of his own son that they would both be a part of as well. But here's what it goes on to say. Abraham took the wood of the offering, verse 6, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand, the kindling, and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. Looks a lot like Jesus on the cross going, What's going on here, father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two went together. So th there is within Abraham this confidence that God is calling him to offer his son, but there is no expectation that this promised son is going to die up there. In fact, in the earlier verses, did you notice what he said there in verse 5? He says to the young guys, he's like, stay here. We're going up to worship. And he's like, we'll both be back. That's really interesting. So he has this idea, this expectation, that whatever God is calling him to, it's going to require their trust, and it's not going to play out the way that the human mind might expect it to. But nonetheless, as he gets up there with Isaac, Isaac is wondering, where's the lamb? And Abraham assures Isaac, don't worry. This is all a setup for God to provide. God is going to provide a lamb. The two went together, and then they came, in verse 9, to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound 
Isaac, his son. Now, it says, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. Like, so important to remember this. Isaac, potentially in his 30s here. Like, th- this is something that, that Isaac is doing in, in, in responsibility and response and obedience to his father. He's submitting to his father's will here. Okay, this story could read very differently if Isaac wanted to do something different. You know, by faith, Isaac fought back his dad and then descended from the mountain, you know. But this is Isaac's faith in going along with what God is speaking to them. So we see this sort of like willingness. It's all a picture of something greater that God is inviting Abraham into. There's this willingness to be bound, this willingness. I mean, you got like a 30-year-old versus like a 130-year-old. There's not even a contest here, but he lays himself down. Abraham, in verse 10, it says, stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. Verse 12 says, and he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For I know, now I know, that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a, in a thicket. The idea there is a thorny bush by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide as it is to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, many of us have walked through or have heard of this story before, whether it was in in, in full or in part. But as we go back to the book of Hebrews, there's a lot that we could get into here. I mean, I could do a 10-part series probably just on this chapter with all the typology that's in here and all the application that's in here. But the book of Hebrews wants us to focus on something specific with Abraham in this narrative of Genesis 22. This is, again, our key verse. This is, and by the way, I love Hebrews 11 because it's like a commentary. It's like the Bible's own commentary of the Bible, all right? Which is the best way to read the Bible is let the Bible tell you about what the Bible's saying, all right? By faith, it tells us again in, in Hebrews, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise, the promises offered up his only son of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So, so what we have here, as I said already in the beginning, through Abraham in this chapter, and what Hebrews 11 is focusing on with this guy, with his son in this setting, is that he got into the wheelbarrow. He trusted God when it seemed like there was no reason to from a human perspective. Now, I want to kind of remark on and focus on from this main verse here. Here's what I want to give us today, kind of something to take uh, for you to take with you as you go. There are three, I think, key focuses of this verse in regards to Abraham's trust that we, we need to look at this morning. You can write these down. We, we want to look at the test of Abraham's trust that we see there in Genesis 22. We want to look at the traits of his trust, how his trust was displayed. And lastly, we want to focus in on the testimony of his trust, the test of his trust, the traits of his trust, and the testimony also of his trust. Let's begin where Hebrews kind of leads us to look at, which is the test of his trust. The test of his trust. That's the first thing that Hebrews 11 is reminding us about. That Abraham offered Isaac, notice this again, when he was tested. 
In fact, Genesis 22 says the same thing, that God came to test Abraham. Now, I, I have some PTSD when it comes to tests, okay? Tests are not my specialty. I don't pursue them. I don't seek them. Um, I would in school, unfortunately, avoid them. Um, it didn't, doesn't really help you pass the test when you avoid the test, by the way. But um, um, so, so there can be even some confusion in our own minds about what's going on here with God testing Abraham. That, that's the language of scripture here, that God is, is testing him. Now, well, let's just start with like a simple understanding of any kind of test. What is a test? Why would God be testing Abraham's faith? What, what does that mean to test someone or something? And here's uh, one way to think about a test. A test, whatever test it may be, whether you're testing a battery or taking a driver's test or a trigonometry test, a test is a tool to surface what's true about the quality of the thing or person being examined. Uh, just last week, kind of like clockwork this time of year, um, Brittany's battery died in her minivan. So lo and behold, that, you know, that turns into a nice trip to advanced auto parts. Got to get the battery tested. Got to make sure we, we absolutely need a new one after kind of troubleshooting everything else. And the goal of that test was to surface what's true about the quality of the thing or the person being examined. That's what a test does. Any test does that, whether it's um, a physical test at the doctor's office. I've got some tests done, some lab work, or even just like a written test. But what a test does is it shows what you know, or rather, if or not you studied. Here's the quality of this person's knowledge here in the test. Um, and that's certainly the case here with God and with Abraham. And also, let me say, with many other people from history. Now, the issue and, and really the reason for God giving someone a test is not because he doesn't know what the truth is behind the person's life or the truth of their heart. God sees that. But oftentimes God brings us through a test so that we can see what he sees, so that he can surface what's really going on, the truth of what's really going on. We see this all throughout the scriptures. God giving people and his children an opportunity to be tested. Has God ever tested you? We'll kind of talk about what that could mean and what that can't mean in a second. But you have this, not just with Abraham, but even in the very beginning of time, the first humans, Adam and Eve, when they're created and they are entrusted with the created world to care for it as partners with God for his own vision of human flourishing, for his own glory, this beautiful created vision there in the Garden of Eden to cultivate, to bring culture and, and, and to, to bring great things out of the raw materials of, out of the earth that God has created. Now, he trusts them, and then he says, okay, but now you also need to trust me, and here's a test. Here's a tree that represents your own knowledge of what's good and what's evil. So I'm telling you, here's what's evil. Don't eat of that tree. But you got to trust me that I know what's right and wrong. You have to trust me that I know the difference between good and evil. Don't seize your own autonomy and be your own moral compass. Don't do that. Trust me. Trust my definition of good and evil. There is a test there. You could eat of every and any other tree that I presented to you here, but if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Here's what he says. Trust me. Now, when the enemy, the serpent, comes to deceive Eve and to lead Adam to disobey God, what is, what is the main thing that he's trying to get Adam and Eve to do? To not trust God. Well, here's why he really said that. Here's, oh, did he really say? Did he really say that? He really tried. Okay, but here's what he, here's the motive. 
Here's God's secret agenda behind what he's trying to do in your life. And so from the very beginning, it was a test of trust. Will you trust me? And let me say this. This is, this is necessary for any flourishing relationship. For, for relation, or any relationship to thrive, there must be mutual trust. Mutual trust, both ways. And so you have a test, even in the beginning of time. Now, it doesn't end there. Of course, we have Abraham here. But if, if you look all throughout Israel's history, you have God consistently showing up in this way, testing his people. I got another test for you. Another test coming up with the Lord, okay? God is like the, the, the professor. I got another test for you, class. And the class is Israel. Deuteronomy 8 uh, talks about this. That you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the, all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you. I'm testing you. I'm trying to see what's really in there. To know what was in your heart. I see it, but I want you to see it as well. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So you have these, these tests over and over again all throughout history. I think God makes it most clear here in Jeremiah 17. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The context of this is is um, God kind of uh, exhorting and correcting man's tendency to trust in our own hearts. The context here is the heart is deceitful. We say things all the time like, follow your heart. It's like, well, no, where is your heart leading? Like, my heart has tricked me into a pint of Ben and Jerry's more time than once, okay? <laughs> so, so, so no, as Christians, we don't follow our hearts. We follow the word of God. We follow Jesus because we know that our hearts can trick us. My heart plays games on me all the time. So, so don't be, you know, your own doctor, the one that, that has the final authority of what's true about you. Allow God to be the one to search you, to test you, to test your mind. So, so again, we have God doing this all throughout history. And, and let me kind of give you the practical ways that he often does this. Maybe right now you can relate to this. You're like, I've been tested by God before, all right? And maybe you're like with Ben and Jerry's as well. I've had that test, all right? But, but here, here tends to be the main almost like, uh, you know, on God's test, they're not true or false questions or multiple choices. They're, they're usually one of these three things. Trials, temptations, and tasks that come our way. The Lord will often test us first with trials. Trials may be the most um, um, rapid way to test where we're really at and who we really are. We see this with Jesus all the time and his disciples. He'd like, he'd teach them about faith. And they'd be like, yeah, we believe, in, we believe you, Jesus. And now he's like, okay, let's test the faith. Let's get into a boat. Let's go into a storm. And in that storm, I'm going to, as a test does, surface the quality of your faith. Now, doesn't the scripture talk about this over and over again? James 1, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. How do I count that all joy? Because I can know something, that the testing of my faith is producing something. In 1 Peter, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7. He goes, man, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though right now you're going through some trials, he says what God is doing through that is he's refining you. He's testing your faith to produce a genuineness through what you're going through. So trials are God's tests to surface what's going on. Um, another thing, temptations. James 1 also talks about this as well, that God himself doesn't tempt man. God cannot be tempted nor tempt anyone. So we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But in Scripture, God is a tester, but God is never a tempter. 
In fact, Satan is, is, is given that title in Scripture. Okay? So, so God doesn't tempt us, but there's this unique verse in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is led by the Spirit, into, by the Holy Spirit. Okay? We're talking about like God's Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. It's like I've been praying for God's spirit to lead me all day long. I did not think this is where it would end up, okay? It makes sense that Jesus started praying like, they're like disciples, they're like, how do we pray? He's like, pray like this. God, please don't lead me into temptation. Lead me not into temptation, okay? But the Holy Spirit brings Jesus into a test. James chapter 1 says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed is the man who, through temptation, doesn't give in, but he takes the God-given way of escape, for he shall be approved, and God will give him the crown of life to those who love him. I believe that temptation is a chance for us always to grow in our love for God. Temptation is often a test. If, if trials test our faith, temptations often uh, test our love. And so we see God using these things. And also, especially in the life of Abraham here, we see God giving Abraham a test through a task. God is testing Abraham's trust through giving him a task, through giving him something to do that doesn't make sense or putting him in a situation that requires trust beyond what the eye can see. I'm not sure if you've been here as well, where you're placed in a circumstance where God is saying, okay, I know you don't get it. Follow me and trust me. This is a test. This is a test. Now, I want to point out something really important about this, lest we get kind of confused. Uh, in Scripture, there are two different Greek words specifically that are most often used to describe a test. Uh, the thing I want to kind of assure us about is God's heart in this. Because, again, we got some, like, bad ideas about God testing us. Like, almost like, oh, I, didn't, I failed God's test. Does that mean I don't make the team? You know what I mean? Like, I'm the dead battery. Who's going to use me? You know, that's, like how I, that's how I can feel, right? But we need to unpack some truths here about God's heart to understand what it, why God gives us a test. If, you're, if you've experienced a test lately, here's what's going on. There's two Greek words for a test or someone testing someone uh, in Scripture. Uh, the first is a Greek word. I wrote it down so I can make you, make you think I can speak Greek. Um, pyrazo. Pyrazo. Can you say pyrazo? Now we can all speak Greek. It's lovely, okay? A bunch of Spartans. All right? Now... Um, pyrazo is when, when someone is tested towards destruction. The goal of this kind of test is, example, is, is the Pharisees' fault finding in Jesus for the purpose of rejection. You ever been, by the way, tested this way? And, and your response was, don't test me. Okay? I know what you're doing. You're fault finding. You're trying to get me heated. Don't test me, bro. All right? Now, this is the word that's used to describe the, the, the Pharisees. They would come to Jesus, and they would ask him questions to test him, to find fault in him, to destroy him. Some of us, we've allowed the enemy to creep into our minds enough to think that this is who God is and what he does to us. This is not how God tests us. God doesn't test us towards destruction. He doesn't test us to find fault, to reject us. But there's another Greek word for testing in the Bible. It's this other Greek word that we're all familiar with. And it's dakimadzo. Can you say dakimadzo? Beautiful, fluent, all right? 
Now, dokimazo is a test that exists to bring someone toward development. And this is the heart of God. God, in, in how God refines us, he doesn't reject us when we fail the test is the big idea. And so this is really important to think about. This is the heart of God. So when God says in Jeremiah 17 that I, the Lord, test the heart, that I'm bringing trials into your life, I'm allowing you to walk, I'm leading you even to a situation of temptation. I'm giving you a task that's beyond your understanding, and I'm testing you. God is never setting up his children to fail. He never sets us up to fail for our destruction, for our demise, but God will allow a test to surface what's true so that we can be developed, so that we could grow. And this is what's great news for me. I'm, I'm someone who has failed many kinds of tests in my life. Anybody ever fail a test before? Okay. The good news of the gospel is that even a failed test can be used for your good. See, the way that God is, is it's not that he casts you out when he sees your score. He goes, oh my gosh, you're, you don't have enough faith. You don't have enough love. You succumb to that temptation. No, no, it's a good thing you went through that. It's a good thing you failed because now you know where you need to grow. Now you know how God can develop you. This is the heart of God. He tests us not for our destruction, but for our development. I, I love the, the, the best expression of this to me is the book of Job. Job is a guy, you could say, who's experienced a test. It's a hard test. It's like an exam, actually, is what he experienced. This is like the bar, okay? Not just like the bar, but like the legal bar. That's, you know what I'm saying? So Job has a hard test, but I want you to notice his words here in Job 23. Notice this is beautiful. He says, look, I go forward, but God is not there. You ever felt this way? I go forward, God, where are you? I go backward, and I can't perceive him. When he works on my left hand, he's probably working, but I don't see him there. Someone told me he's working, but I don't see any evidence of it. And then I look to my right, and I cannot see him, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. What a beautiful assurance to have when you're walking through life without any understanding. When you have no ability to grasp hold of who God is, where he is. I can't see him before me. I can't see him behind me. I can't see him to my left. I can't see him to my right. But my security is not that I see God. It's that God sees me. And that he knows me. And he's got my best interest at heart. And even though this sucks really bad and I want this to end, and this is getting harder and harder and harder, I trust that he's the one who started this and he's going to perfect what he's begun. He's bringing me forth, even as gold. What a beautiful exclamation to make. He is, I don't feel like gold most of the time. I don't look in the mirror and go, gold medal, there I am. Podium, right? No, I feel like scum most of the time. But my security is in the fact that he is the one testing me. He is the one, and his heart is for my good, not my destruction. Amen? So Abraham is in a great example of this. And, and you know, there's something beautiful about, um, you know, when you get this, like when you really grab onto the heart of God and you believe that God's heart is for you and towards you with every test you walk through, you know what starts to happen? Not only do you pray against every test happening, like, I don't need another test. I'm really scared of what it's going to show about me, you know, and you kind of avoid the test. And maybe, or here's another one. You avoid the results of the test. You're like, oh, I don't want to look at that. That's a big F. That's an F minus, all right? Now, when you understand the heart of God, you no longer avoid the test. You know what you start doing? You start inviting the test. This is Psalm 139. We all know this verse, right? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. What a prayer to pray. God, give me, I need a test. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Just like Abraham. Bring me towards that better place through the test that I'm facing. So that's the test of his trust. I promise these next two will move along much quicker. This has, by the way, been a test of patience, okay? Look at this next verse. So we go back to Hebrews 11. We see the test of Abraham's trust. But I want you to notice also the second thing was the traits of his trust. The traits of Abraham's trust. As he is being brought forth towards gold, as God is seeking to lead Abraham further in the way of everlasting by testing his trust, there are two specific traits that I want to draw our attention to in how Abraham walked through this test with his son Isaac. Uh, The two traits, write these down, two traits of trust that are produced in Abraham, that are tested in Abraham, that God will test in us as well. Surrender and confidence. Am I surrendered to God completely? And do I have a confidence enough in who I know him to be that even when it doesn't make sense, I'm going to trust him? The traits of Abraham's trust involve surrender. It takes a lot of surrender to do what Abraham did. But that has to be undergirded by some confidence in who's calling you and what they're telling you to do. Uh, This is what it says in Hebrews 11, our main verse. We see a surrender that's displayed in how Abraham obeyed God. It says, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And here's what it says. It gives us a little commentary of why this is so significant. This is not just Isaac, his son. His only, I mean, it's his only son. That's big enough of a deal. But this is Isaac, the son, who he had received. We did a whole Bible study in him waiting years and years and years for God to fulfill his promise. And here's the fulfillment of God's promise in flesh and blood, in the form of, of Isaac. And this is the one that God tells Abraham to offer. Offer him to me, offer the one that you've received after years and years of waiting, your only begotten son. Offer the one who's your hope of my promises. That's what's interesting. The one in, in, this is the one through your seed that all my promises are going to be fulfilled. You're the father of many nations. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your lineage is what God told Abraham. And so here's the fulfillment of that. Like, you ever had God do this? Like, God, I've been praying for this thing. Here's the answer. And now it's gone. Or now you're telling me to offer it to you. Now, there's, there's an insight just in this verse, and here's what the insight is. A.W. Tozer agrees with this. He kind of propagates this idea in his book, The Pursuit of God. One of my favorite chapters in, in this book, it's a chapter called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. The blessedness of having a loose grip on any and everything in your life. And in this chapter, Tozer says that for Abraham at this point in his life, he had developed an unhealthy possession of his son Isaac. Um, Isaac came to mean to Abraham so much more than his only son. Isaac came to mean who God was supposed to mean, his hope. Brittany and I have been, my wife, have been uh, trying to get through Lord of the Rings been a while. We're already almost a quarter way through episode one. Not the extended versions. We put the kids down. We get a little episode in. Um, she falls asleep usually. I'm like, hey, it's, you know, you, it's a great. I'm like, wait, you know. Um, I, I'm, I'm, Judah's at that age. He's eight years older. I'm like trying to find out like what's appropriate for him. I'm, I don't want to like shelter him. 
I don't want to overexpose him. Turns out, eight years old is too young. Okay. As evidenced by my sleepless nights the past few months. But Gollum, he's cute to me. A little Smeagol? A little cutie? Not to an eight-year-old. Okay, so... But what a fascinating character in the Lord of the Rings, Gollum, who represents this obsession with what's in his hand. My precious. Now, let me ask you for a second. Who or what's your precious? For Abraham, it was Isaac. It was his, in the idea there is, by the way, your kids should be precious to you. But there's a grip you could have so tight on your kids to where you harm them. You put a weight upon them to be who only God can. A.W. Tozer unpacks this, and I pretty much have like the first three pages of that chapter for you, because why not? Here's what it says. And we can all read that, of course. So I'll just, listen, this is my fault. I was like, Mike, can you put up nine chapters up on the screen? So, so if, if you can see it, read it. If not, listen as I read. Listen to this. Before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared him for a world useful and pleasant. He prepared for him a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis account of creation, these are simply, I love this in quote, things. They were made for man's use, but they were meant to always be external to the man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, and without, around him, a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. Now here's what's broken in the human order in our hearts as well. But sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. Potential source of ruin. The gifts of God, which are good things, can become bad things when they become God things. He said, our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place upon the throne. What are those aggressive usurpers in your heart, in my heart? This is not a mere metaphor, my favorite section but an accurate analysis of our real spiritual trouble. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one root lest we die. Things have become necessary to us. A development, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God. And the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. This is what has gone wrong with the world. This is what's gone wrong with our lives. This is what's wrong with the created order, that man has removed God from that central place. And we have these usurpers that come in and take that place as well. It's as if God knew this about Abraham, the son, and here's what God says, the son that you love in an unhealthy way, in an obsessive way. 
So Abraham, here's what I want you to do with that thing that you have a tight grip on. I want you to offer him to me. I don't want you to withhold him in idolatry. I want you to surrender him in worship. Because it's only then, Tozer goes on to say, it's only then that Abraham could have been the father to Isaac that he needed to be. When he surrendered him to God. Just a beautiful display of surrender. But not just surrender, also confidence. That was the other thing that we see with Abraham. We see this surrender displayed in his trust, but we see this confidence displayed in his trust. This is kind of what undergirded his offering. It says that by faith Abraham, when he was tested by God, he offered up Isaac, the one that was, had become his hope, the one through which God was going to provide everything he promised, but Abraham did this, and this is like just such a great word that I, wanna, I really want to pray that gets into our faith. He did this concluding some things. He made some conclusions that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. I love this. He's like, well, God's telling me to offer the one through which he promised would come my lineage and, and the fulfillment of all his promises. The reason why Abraham was able to do that without worry, the reason why he was able to like, leave the two servants and go up the mountain with, Ab- with Isaac, getting ready to slay him, and say, we'll be right back, was because he had come to certain conclusions about God. He concluded, he concluded that God, God's going to make a way however he wants. Maybe he'll raise him up. He'd even say he concluded that God would provide a ram in the thicket. He doesn't even say that. He concluded that, I mean, okay, well, if God's telling me to do this, that means he's going to make a way in his own way. And here's the key point, because of who he concluded God to be. Um, I wonder if for some of us, the, the biggest obstacle to our trust is we're unsettled about who God is. We haven't come to the conclusions we need to come to about who he is, even when he's given us every reason to conclude. What do you need to conclude about God right now with what you're walking through? What conclusion do you need to come to about who he is? That he'll make a way. You just conc- How about just this one? You can just conclude that he's good. Draw that conclusion. Come to that conclusion. He's good. No matter what I'm going through, it's okay because I've concluded he's always good. Now, the word concluded is really interesting. Uh, it, it could also be translated he calculated. I love that. He did some calculus. Abraham does the math, and in doing the math, nothing was adding up. God's calling him to do something, but like he's doing the math, and he's like, you know, pre-algebra even, like not even that advanced. He's just doing some basic math, and he's like, I can't, things aren't adding up. But when he added God to the equation, his conclusion changed. He, he calculated. How are you calculating? I don't know about you. I can get lost sometimes. Um, it's called paralysis by analysis, where I'm just stuck calculating, how is this going to turn out? If I add this to this, and then I think, if I, and it's like, what would, we, what, would, what would happen in our trust if we just began to add God to the equation? He concluded. He was confident. This is the traits of Abraham's trust that he displayed. So confident in who God is that he was willing to surrender the life of his son to what God was calling him to do. You know, here's the language of scripture. This is a verse you've never heard before. Check this out. Trust in the Lord. Or maybe you need to hear it again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Get into God's wheelbarrow. 
and lean out on your own understanding. Stop trying to do your own math to try to figure it out. Here's a better option. Add God to the equation. Conclude who he is. Come to the conclusions about who you know him to be and give him everything. Trust the Lord with all your heart. It says this, in all your ways acknowledge him. Just acknowledge who he is and watch what he does. He will direct your paths. Amen? So I'm going to invite the band up and uh, they're going to come and and as, as we're closing out in this moment, I mentioned the last thing of Abraham's faith. We see his trust was tested. We see the the traits of Abraham's trust that was displayed. And then afterwards, we see at the end of the day, this incredible testimony that Abraham has because of his trust in God. Um, A testimony, by the way, is an eyewitness account of something. You give a testimony. And, And through trusting in God, here's what Abraham, hundreds of years of walking with God, here's what Abraham has to say to us who are struggling with trusting God. Abraham is there to say, God is always faithful. He's always worthy of trust because he always comes through. The the very center scripture of the Bible is, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man or anything else. This is where Abraham's uh, testimony is leading us to go, to trust that God will always be who we can bank on him to be. What's really cool about Abraham's testimony and really the main reason for all that God is, is doing through Abraham's story, you know, the, really the, the two responses I give to someone who's struggling with reading the Bible is, well, one of the two main questions is, are you, are you, have you read the context? Keep reading. What's going on here? What's the broader story? But the other question that, that's important to ask, especially in a story like this, is where do you see Jesus? The, the key to understanding the Bible is to see how it points to the point of the Bible, which is Jesus himself. And in Abraham's testimony, you have this incredible act of trust, this incredible act of God that now turns out to an eyewitness account where Abraham goes, I'm naming this place, God provides. God provides, that becomes his testimony, God's faithful. And and it's more than just Abraham's testimony, it becomes a testimony for generations to come that exists, listen closely, as a shadow of a greater provision. This may be the most, big word, typologically rich Old Testament passage in terms of Jesus and Isaac. I want you to see some of the parallels between Jesus and Isaac. Jesus, like Isaac, was a son of promise. Jesus, like Isaac, was born of a miraculous conception. Jesus, like Isaac, is the father's beloved and only son. Jesus carried the wood up the hill of Mount Moriah, the same mountain. Jesus was accompanied by two men, not two servants, but two thieves. Jesus, maybe the same exact age as Isaac at this point, submits to his father. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is the provided lamb of God in the thorns. Jesus comes back from the dead. You see, Jesus said this. I love this verse. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Your father Abraham was glad when he saw it. Your father Abraham came to understand something 
that everything I was doing in his life was a shadow of my greatest provision that I would ever make, that God would ever make, the provision of Jesus, whom God says, trust. Trust in Jesus. I want to remind you, first and foremost, that if you're looking for another reason to trust in God this morning, look no further than Jesus. Look no further than the Son of God who came into this world to live the life you and I failed to live in perfection and then take upon himself the guilt, the sentence of our sin on that cross. The question that Isaac asks Abraham, where is the lamb? You know what the first question of the New Testament is? Where is he? The wise men, where is he? The response is, behold, the lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus goes to the cross, and whatever your sin is, whatever your brokenness is, here's the gospel. You are not left to repair yourself. You're not left to cleanse yourself. There's no righteous acts or deeds or church attendance or any good thing that you and I could ever do to reach back up to God. But here's the gospel. God, knowing that, reached down to us, sent his son Jesus to be sin for you and I on that cross so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He bled and died for our forgiveness, for our adoption, for our eternity. He rose from the dead. He reigns victorious now, and he says this to you and I. Trust me with everything. Trust me with everything. Get into the wheelbarrow. Place the weight of your life in my hands. You'll have the same testimony of Abraham. God's faithful, and God provides. Amen. Amen.